Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. I wanted to bring a Christmas message from the greeting and the prophecy that Gabriel gave to Mary. And it's found in Luke chapter 1, and uh, beginning with the 26th verse. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, for the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I don't know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One that will be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, is also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, and let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Gabriel, who's really like God's messenger angel, comes to Nazareth and greets Mary and says to Mary, you're highly favored. He says, you're going to conceive in your womb. Going to be a son. You're to call his name Jesus. And then begins to prophesy about Jesus, what he's going to do, and about his kingdom that's coming. So I want to unpack this a little bit. And starting with the 28th verse, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. I want you to just imagine the angel Gabriel coming from God's presence and showing up in a room where there's just you and the angel. I mean, his presence is going to be startling so much so that he has to tell her, don't be afraid. It seems like most of the time when an angel shows up, people are like freaking out. They're they're so majestic. But then the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. Now imagine Gabriel showing up in your room and saying, rejoice, highly favored one. Imagine the angel saying that to you. Now he said that to Mary. She was chosen to be the mother of our Redeemer. This was the highest honor that could come on any Israeli woman. And and it's happening to her. And he says, rejoice, highly favored one. I want you to think about that. How is she feeling? How is she responding? Right. But in Ephesians chapter one and verse six, it says this to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. So you are accepted in the beloved. That word accepted 
in the Greek is the exact same word that the angel said to Mary. We could say it this way. He said, rejoice, you're accepted to Mary. He said, rejoice, highly favored one. But literally that in Ephesians 6, 1, you are highly favored in the beloved. That is your condition. You are highly favored. Now, most people have this concept of God in their mind that God's a little bit mad. He's angry about something that they've done. He's disappointed. He's holding out. He's resentful. Or at the least, God is in a bad mood. But the truth is, when God sees you, he sees you as a highly favored one. You are accepted in the beloved. In him, you're highly favored. Now, how many of you know that's where you are? You're in him. Now, to me, one of the interesting things is that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. So he's going to tell you the exact opposite. You are continually going to be hearing from the devil, all right, that God's mad, that God's upset, that God's not going to bless you, that God's not going to use you, that God's not going to extend his grace and his favor towards you. But the exact opposite is the truth. Because you are in Christ, you are highly favored. By the way, a, a, a good working definition of favor is the friendly disposition from which kindly acts proceed. It is literally a synonym of grace. Now remember, grace is what you don't deserve. It's what God has done for you that you do not deserve. Right? In fact, Vine says it's to assist, to provide with special advantages, right? to receive preferential treatment right? that is freely bestowed. So the world's system is the favor system. Right? I do something for you, and then what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to do something for me. Right? That's the world system. But God's system is completely different. God's system is not you have favor because you're going to do something for somebody. Right? But God's system is for no reason at all except for Jesus. I mean, that's a big reason. Right? God's favor is on you. Right? There is, there is preferential treatment. There's special advantages, right? For you because of that favor that's on you. So it, when I think of favor, one of the people that I go to in my mind is a man named Joseph. We have Abraham, whose son is Isaac, whose son is Jacob. And Joseph is one of 12 sons of Jacob. And Jacob how can we say this? He liked Joseph more than any of his other kids. And he treated him special and gave him special gift. And in the Bible says that his brothers, they hated him because of it. And they couldn't speak well about him. In fact, one day, the brothers are all out watching the sheep and Joseph is coming. And they said, you know, here he comes. Here's our chance to get him. They beat him up. They throw him in a pit. And they sell him to a passing caravan as a slave. And they take him down to Egypt. And he's bought by a guy by the name of Potiphar. And he starts working for Potiphar. He's a slave, but he's working in Potiphar's house. Now, the Bible says about Joseph that he was handsome 
right? In form and appearance, right? So he had a great build, like me. Maybe not. <laughs> uh, and he was handsome, right? Probably had a lot of hair. He was a handsome guy. In fact, Josephus tells us that Potiphar's wife would have her friends over and would have Joseph come in, and they would talk about him right in his presence. Well, the Bible tells us this, that she kept on saying to him, sleep with me, sleep with me, sleep with me. And he kept saying, no, no. And the Bible says that he didn't answer her request and he refused to even be with her. When she was around, he avoided her. But one day they were alone in the house and she grabbed him and said, sleep with me. And he said, no. She tries to pull him in. He leaves his coat and takes off running. Well, she took that coat, folded it up, and put it on the sofa next to her, waited till her husband got home. And said, that, that Hebrew, he tried to rape me. And when I screamed, he left his coat and he ran. Well, the husband believed his wife, and Joseph gets thrown in prison, where he's spending years. Well, it so happens that the, the pharaoh, the king, had two of his servants that were in that prison. And they each had a dream. And Joseph interprets their dreams and says, please remember me. Well, exactly as Joseph interpreted, the dreams came to pass, but they forgot about him. And a few years pass again, and he's just left in the dungeon. But one day, Pharaoh has a dream, and no one can interpret it. And the baker, excuse me, it was the cupbearer, said, I remember when I was in prison. And a Hebrew interpreted my dream, and it came to pass. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph. Now, here's the story. It says that God delivered him out of all of his troubles, Zach 7, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So Joseph wakes up in the morning. He's in a dungeon. Pharaoh calls for him to interpret a dream. And when he's in front of favor, if, 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 excuse me, in front of Pharaoh, God gives him two things. He gives him wisdom and he gives him favor. Right? He interprets the dream. He puts a plan out before Pharaoh what to do. And Pharaoh promotes him. And he went to bed that night as prime minister of Egypt. So I want to tell you, I, I like to say this in two different ways. Number one, this is what I say. One day of God's favor can do more for you than a thousand days of labor. There were a lot of people that were doing everything that they could, hoping to become prime minister. But one day of God's favor put Joseph in a spot that a thousand days of labor could not put him. And one day of God's favor on your life can change everything. In fact, let's say it this way. He went, woke up in the morning in a dungeon, a prisoner, went to bed prime minister, right? With God's favor, God can get you anywhere in 24 hours. Your life literally can be totally different in 24 hours because of the favor of God. The Bible says about Jesus that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So you can be at different levels of favor. He increased in favor. Jesus did. 
The Bible says in Psalm 7 and verse 12, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. So God's favor can surround you, protect you, promote you. Now, I mentioned there's two people that immediately come to my mind when I think about favor. One is Joseph. But the other one is a really kind of an obscure woman in the Bible by the name of Ruth. She's a Moabite, but she married an Israelite who dies. And she ends up in Bethlehem living with her mother-in-law. She's a widow. And in that society, uh, that was not a good position to be in. Um, there, there was no government assistance. In fact, if you were poor, what you had to do was go in somebody's field after they had passed through and reaped it. And after they had passed through one time, they weren't allowed to pass through again. And you could pick up what was left. And it was called gleaming. So she said to her mother-in-law, she said, please let me go to the field and gleam heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. So before she goes to work, right, she says, I'm going to have favor with my boss. Now, a lot of people talk about their boss before they go to work. And they have things to say like, he's an idiot. He never appreciates me. That, that, that boss of mine, he doesn't know what he's doing. But what she said before she went to work was, I'm going to have favor. Right? She's claiming the favor of God on her life before she goes to work. And here's, I think it's interesting. A couple of verses later, this is in fact the next verse. It says, so she happened to come to the part of the field which belonged to Boaz. She happened to come. We, we could say it was a coincidence. In fact, I would say this, that the lowest level of favor is when just divine coincidences happen, right? I just happen to be in Costco and bump into somebody who says, I watch you on television and I have cancer and I've been wanting you to pray for me. Now you can say, well, that's a coincidence. Yeah, it's a divine coincidence. A lot of times coincidences are just God trying to stay anonymous. He sets you up. You're just like, I was wanting to see him and I was praying for him and there they were. God just sets you up. It seems like a coincidence, but the truth is God's setting you up. And it's the favor of God that's on your life, right? Just a couple of verses later, they're putting handfuls on purpose in front of her. Right? Handfuls on purpose. When, when, when you grow in favor, all of a sudden, things just, it, it just seems like they're, they're again and again, it's just like handfuls, blessing, blessing, blessing. It's just coming and it's on purpose. I mean, it's obvious to everybody. God's blessing is there, and it's God's favor. It's his favor, right? Well, it's just a few weeks later, and the Bible says that he takes her shawl, and he puts in it six ephods of seed. Now, I, I sat down a few years ago and figured it out. It's over 100 pounds, right? And he picks it up. And he, the Bible says he laid it on her. How many of you would like God to lay some stuff on you? Like some blessing on you. Honey, stand up. I kind of imagine Ruth kind of looked like Jeannie. All right. 
112 pounds all wet. And he's laying, he's laying 100 pounds on her. Right? Literally, it's like God's given her all she could handle. Right? And again, it's no longer just handfuls. The, 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 the degree of favor has increased. And if you re- keep reading the story, it's only a few months later, and she literally owns the field. What do you call that? Favor. The favor of God can open doors for you that would never open any other way. God's favor can bring wisdom in your life to deal with situations. Now, here's the thing about favor. It's by grace. It is by grace. In other words, it's not because you were great or because you did a certain thing. However, we have to believe in that favor. And just like Ruth, we need to expect it. We need to confess favor in our life. Now, there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. How many of you know that? Nothing you can do to make him love you more. So that, that favor is not dependent on your behavior being perfect. Because there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. However, there are things you can do that make you love God less. And there's things you can do that make you love God more. Right? Now, the Bible says this in Hebrews 3 and verse 13. Least any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Least any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, the deceitfulness of sin says this. I can sin and it won't make any difference. It will not, I will be just the same afterwards as I will before. But what happens when we sin, it hardens our heart towards God. In other words, we love God less. We love him less because we give ourselves to that that, that thing and it hardens our heart towards God. And at the same way, there's things you can do that will literally cause you to love God more. It will move your heart towards God. For example, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, Jesus said, what you and I do with our treasure affects our heart. It moves our heart towards God. When you worship, when you praise God, when you pray, when you seek God, those all move your heart towards God. Now, do they make God love you more? Nope. They don't make God love you more but they make you and I love God more. And sin does not make him love us less, but we love him less because it hardens our heart towards him. So you remember your favorite and remember Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is going to constantly be telling you what you've done wrong and that God's favor does not rest on you. So what do we need to do as a response? We need to do something. Right? In Romans chapter 10, in verse 8, it says, But what does it, faith, say? It says the word is near you, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. So we need to begin to say what God says about us. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he said that he that knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. We need to tell the devil what the word of God says because we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the 
word of our testimony. Literally, it's what the blood of Jesus purchased for us and our testifying to what the blood has purchased. Then back to Luke chapter one. When she saw him, the angel, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. What Mary ends up saying is this. She ends up saying, let it be unto me according to your word. Now listen, the word that God speaks to you needs to be spoken through you. You got that? You need to say what God says about you. When, when the apostle Paul, Acts chapter 27, is in a hurricane, the angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him, don't be afraid. He said, this ship is going to crash, but everybody's going to be saved and you're going to stand before Caesar. He goes and he tells the people, the angel of the, Lord, of, the, of the God whom I serve appeared to me. And this is what he said. And he said, be of good cheer because I believe God. Right? So the thing that was spoken to him had to be spoken through him. When the angel said, you're going, to, you're going to conceive even though you've never known a man, she said, let it be unto me according to your word. What God speaks to you right, needs to be spoken through you. You need to agree with God. That's really important that you and I that the words that we speak agree with what God has said about us. Now, it says that you will conceive in your womb. You will conceive in your womb. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the angel said to her, Luke 1, 37, for behold, with God, nothing is ever impossible. And no word from God, listen to this, and no word from God shall be without power. See, when God speaks a word, the power to accomplish what he said is in his word. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. The, 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 the power to accomplish what God said was in the word that he spoke. In Hebrews 4, it says that God's word is living and powerful. Right? It's alive. It's powerful. To, the, 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 the possibility of, of fulfillment is in the word itself. For, no God, no, for with God, nothing will be impossible. No word from God shall be without power or possibility of fulfillment. Because the power is right there in that word. So the Bible says the word became flesh. Why don't you think about this? Over 300 times in the Old Testament, there is a prophecy about Jesus, about him coming. Beginning way back in Genesis chapter 3 with the 15th verse, where God said that the seed of the woman will crush Satan's head. In Isaiah, he said, for unto us, a child is born and unto us, a son is given 
and the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forth and forevermore, the seal of the Lord of hosts will proclaim it. Over 300 times there is a prophecy spoken about Jesus. But the Bible says the word became flesh. In Amos 3, verse 7, it says, Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. God had said it's going to be the seed of the woman. He said a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. He said he's going to be the seed of Abraham. He's going to be the seed of David. And again, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Each one alive. Each one powerful. And the word became flesh. The word became flesh because nothing spoken by God is impossible. So literally, what this is showing us is the power of God's word. It is the word that became flesh. What God had spoken, the power was in that word. Well, it says it this way in uh, the book of Hebrews, verse 5, 10, 5. When he came into the world, Now, this is literally Jesus in heaven before he was conceived in the womb of Mary. And he's in heaven having a conversation. Let me realize when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that was not the beginning. That was not the beginning, right? Because he was with God in the beginning. The Bible says that all things were created by him. And without him, nothing was created that was created. So when God said, let there be light, it literally was Jesus who said, let there be light. So when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me. Sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, for unto us a child is born. That's referring to Jesus' human body. And unto us, a son is given. He was already in heaven. He had to be given from heaven. The son had to be given. Jesus did not begin to exist when he was born in in Bethlehem. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were created through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. But it was the word that became flesh. So the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that when Jesus returns, out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword with which he conquers or judges his enemies. I love uh, Rick Renner's explanation of this. He said that two-edged sword is this. One edge is when God says it, and the other edge is when you say it. Got that? One edge is when God says it, but the other edge is when you say it. It becomes powerful when that word is spoken out of your mouth. But what does faith say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart, even the word of faith which we preach. Well, let me just share one more thought uh, about from Luke chapter 21. 
The angel said, and God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, we all know this. Jesus came to save us from our sins. But honestly, that wasn't his purpose. That was what he had to do to get to his purpose. His purpose was always kingdom. It was always the kingdom of God. In fact, when Jesus came, what did he say? Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's here. It's available. It's now. It's for you. You don't need to wait. The kingdom is available. Jesus said, pray your kingdom. Come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the kingdom today is when God's will is done on the earth, just like it is in heaven. And today, people have an opportunity to receive the king, to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and become a part of the kingdom. But the day will come when the kingdom will be enforced. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when Jesus arose from the dead, he's spending 40 days with his disciples. And the Bible says he's speaking to them of things concerning the kingdom of God. Right? Now, how many of you know when Jesus has risen from the dead and he's got his disciples' attention, he's talking to them about the important stuff? What is he talking about? The kingdom. In fact, to the degree the, the disciples, this is Acts chapter 1, they said to Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus didn't say, oh, you guys got messed up theology. That's never going to happen. He said, it's not for you to know the time or the season which are in the Father's authority. In fact, he in, in Matthew chapter 19, he said in the regeneration, right, that's when Jesus returns. And, and by the way, every single New Testament author, even if they just wrote one book, every New Testament author talks about Jesus returning. He's coming back. And he's not coming back as the suffering servant. He's coming back as king of kings and Lord of Lords, right? So he's coming back, right? So Jesus said to them in the restoration, when he returns, he said, you 12 will sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's going to be a kingdom, right? You remember Genesis chapter 12, verse three, verses, verses two, three, and four are probably the most important verses for sure in the entire Old Testament, and they may be the most important verses in the entire Bible. But God said to, to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Right? That prophecy has not been fulfilled yet. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem, the Bible says. Right? So 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have died or have fallen asleep. Least you sorrow as others that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or who have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord. He's coming back. We'll by no means proceed, go ahead of, receive our redemption before those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Let me remind, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So your spirit goes to be with the Lord, but your body is waiting for its redemption. And when it says that the dead in Christ will rise first, it's talking about your body. It's going to be reunited right, with your spirit. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Now, I, I taught on this 25 years ago, probably, and um, we had to actually have a, a special deacon, excuse me, a special elders meeting because the elders went, we never heard that before. Well, let me just tell you, it's in the Bible. Right? But listen to the Apostle Paul. If by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead, not of the dead, but from the dead. For believers, there is a resurrection from the dead. And it's from the dead because the rest of the dead stay dead. That is their bodies until after the thousand year reign of Christ. Revelation 20, verse four. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had beheaded for their witness to Jesus, the word of God, who have not worshiped the beast or his image and received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And by the way, six times in six verses, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. How many of you get it? Thousand years. All right. Listen, verse five. But the rest of the dead didn't live again until the thousand years were finished. But the believers are raised from or from among the dead. And the rest are not raised until the thousand years are finished. All right? And then there's what we would call the general resurrection, when everybody is raised. All right? This is the first resurrection. Blessed and is holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. And they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So there, when Jesus comes back, in fact, people are like, the end of the world, the end of the world. Look, if Jesus came back today, there'd be at least a thousand years before the end of the world. End of the world's not even close. The end of human government is close. Because when Jesus comes back, he's coming back as king. He's coming back to rule and to reign. Right? So the government, though, though like we've seen, is going to end. Because Jesus is coming to rule and to reign. Right? At the end of that thousand years, then there is the general resurrection. There's judgment day. And then is Revelation chapter 22, 21 and 22. All right? And that's when God takes this earth. It says a new heaven. It's literally a new atmosphere and a new earth. And God comes down and he makes his tabernacle, his home here on earth. The Bible said he will be our God. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death or pain or crying, right? And he says, behold, I will make all things new. That's the eternal kingdom, right? That angel said, he'll reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever, forever and ever and ever and ever. In fact, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 25, let me close with this. It says, 
These go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Uh, I think it's interesting. Most people today believe in heaven, but don't believe in hell. But the exact same Greek word that talks about punishment, everlasting, in the same verse is translated eternal. Eternal life and it's eternal punishment. You can't have one without the other. In other words, there really is a heaven and an eternity to be gained. And there is a real hell to be shunned. Jesus talked about the, both of them in the exact same term. And uh, we, we live in a society today which does not ever want to give an account for anything that they do. We live in a society today that doesn't even, they say they don't even believe in right and wrong. But there is going to be a judgment day and everyone's going to stand before God and we're going to give an account. We're going to give an account. Now, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. You can't earn your salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. He said, all the good things that I could do could never save me. Mother Teresa will not be right with God because of all the good things she did. Jesus said, there's only one way to be right with God, and that's through him. Because every person, every person has missed it. Every person has sinned. I think it's interesting, even Mary, the mother of Jesus, she said this, I rejoice in God, my Savior. She said, I need a Savior. You need a Savior. Everybody needs a Savior. So Jesus came and lived a sinless life and went to a cross and said, when I'm on that cross and I'm lifted up, he said, I will gather all men into myself. Just like Adam sinned and got us all in trouble, Jesus went to a cross and said, I'm taking everybody into myself and I'm going to pay for everybody's sin. And you say, how does that work? I don't understand it exactly, but I know that in God's system of justice, one person got us all into trouble and one person can get you out of trouble. One person represented humanity and sin, but one person went to a cross and paid for the sin of all of humanity. And Jesus said, if you will believe that, that my blood paid for your sin and received me as your Lord and your Savior, you'll be saved. It's not enough just to believe in God. The Bible says in John chapter 1, to as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to be the children of God. So I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads for just a moment. Wherever you're at online, would you do the same? Would you just bow your head? And I want you to pray this prayer out loud. You're away from God. You don't know where you stand with God. The Bible says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we're going to call on the name of the Lord the way the Bible shows us to. And if you will pray this prayer from your heart, when we say amen, you're going to be saved. So please make these words your own. Just say, oh God, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sins. And I believe he rose again, victorious over death, 
sin, and the devil. And I give him all of my heart and all of my life. I hold nothing back. Jesus is my King, my Lord, and my Savior. I thank you. You've heard my prayer that I am now a part of your family, your kingdom, today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org, follow us on social media, or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day, and we will see you again soon.